Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Edith Gonzalez talks about the Peter Clayson Wyckoff House in Canarsie, Brooklyn, the oldest structure in the city and the first to be designated a landmark. Typifying the architectural vernacular of the Dutch, New York's first colonial settlers, the farmhouse also bears the physical reflection of the myriad social changes which came afterward, thus offering a unique window onto the city's past. Gonzalez, an historical archaeologist specializing in the colonial Americas, has excavated a number of agricultural estates in the West Indies and New York City, including Wyckoff House. For more podcasts like this and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. As New Yorkers, we get used to the city changing around us, the character of neighborhoods shifting as inhabitants come and go. It's something we love about the city, and it's my favorite thing about the Wyckoff House. Although New York City has iconic buildings that anchor us, the ebb and flow of demolition and construction leaves marks on buildings all around us. I mean, just take the word building itself. It's both an active form of the verb to build, as well as the noun meaning an edifice. It seems appropriate that the word connotes an active process of construction, even though it describes architecture something that is experienced as permanent for most of us. Think about the buildings that you experience every day. When you go to work in the morning and return home at night, you take it for granted that your office and your house will be there, just as surely as the sun rises and sets. Yet the buildings are not static. They're modified continually by those inhabiting them. Perhaps something as simple as a new paint job, switching out bedroom furniture with the den, or adding an addition, bringing up out of the side porch. And while changes to buildings may appear trivial when viewed individually, they tell a great story when placed cumulatively in an historical perspective. The changes speak of the economies, values, politics, fashion, in a word, the culture which surrounds and influences the inhabitants of the building and their choices in modifying it. Not culture um, remaining fixed, but culture as active as a building, reflecting and reinforcing the identity of the inhabitant. The Wyckoff House in Brooklyn is of Dutch colonial origin and was built circa 1652. It was owned by the Wyckoff family until the 1960s. The length of its occupation and the continuity of the family who inhabit it are unusual because we know the origins of the Wyckoff family. They remain fairly consistent in marrying others of the same origins throughout the 17th and 18th centuries. This consistency allows us to chart the changes in family identity through the colonial process. This house underwent three major transformations after its initial construction in 1652. The first occurred at the turn of the 18th century, the second in the mid-18th century, and the third in the early 19th century. From these changes, we can see how the Wyckoff family functioned within the house and map the changes they made to the house. Through this, we can see their changing roles within and because of their society. Their shifting identity is reflected and strengthened by the reconstructions because a house relates a house's inhabitants to the other members of their community. Think of it as those who live in the house and those who see the house. The house also relates the inhabitants to nature for the house is made of nature's substances and is located literally between the people 
and the environment. Before we can talk about the house itself, it might be helpful to note what was happening in the colony at the time. New Netherlands was first established as a colony in 1615 by merchants from the New Netherlands Company. It began as a fur trading post at the junction of two rivers where a small fort was built. Its main purpose was to advance the Netherlands economically by breaking the French monopoly on North American fur. Trading continued until the Dutch West India Company began the wholesale exploitation of the region at around 1623. The Dutch West India Company had many years of experience in creating productive colonies. In the West Indies and the Wild Coast, trade colonies were already in the works, and the Dutch East India Company, a sister branch of the Dutch West India Company, had already colonized in India and Africa for the express goal of trading in exotic goods. The Dutch West India Company set out not only to exploit the fur trade, but to create a successful colony which would in turn expand their market for Dutch goods and produce primary products for Dutch manufacture. These products included flax for the production of linen, oak, hickory for timber for shipbuilding, hemp for fishing net and rope, indigo for clothing dyes, grains, and tobacco. In order to achieve this goal, the colony had to become more stable than a trading post. Hence, by 1624, 30 families immigrated to New Netherlands. In 1625, 45 more families arrived. And this is one of the most unusual practices of the Dutch West India Company, the settlement of families. All other colonizing powers, Spain, Portugal, France, and England, preferred their initial settlements to be solely or almost entirely composed of men, be they soldiers, missionaries, or traders. By using families as the initial settlers, the Dutch West India Company was able to control the colony and maintain stability by tying them to the land. These families were assigned farm plots, which were measured and allocated by the company and required to farm them for six years. This accounts for the evenly divided geometric farms occurring throughout the colony. And the New World farms mirror the distinctive shape of Dutch farms. The New Netherlands came to have the reputation as a place where a man could build an estate through hard work with a minimal investment of time. A colonial mindset emphasizing individualism and self-sufficiency encouraged families to seek their fortunes abroad. Young men, married or single, often became indentured servants to the Dutch West India Company, which would provide passage fare to New Netherlands and a small wage per year of servitude on large estates. In 1637, at the age of 13, Peter Claisen, not yet named Wyckoff, arrived in New Netherlands. After spending five years as a servant to a wealthy farmer near Fort Orange, Peter took his small cash settlement and rented a farm of his own. Peter began climbing the social ladder rapidly. He married Greta Van Ness, the daughter of a prominent businessman. They lived for a while at Rensselaerwijk, until in 1649, when Peter moved his family to New Amsterdam. Once in New Amsterdam, he was hired to manage the estate of Governor Peter Stuyvesant, located in Flatlands, Brooklyn. In 1652, he and his family moved into a two-room farmhouse on the property that was later expanded as the Wyckoff family occupied it for over 300 years. The house today 
sits in Clarendon Road at East 59th Street in Brooklyn. The house once stood on a small rise in the landscape. Photographs taken in the early 20th century show the house still somewhat isolated, with no other visible buildings around it and a small stream along the side of the house. But today, the house sits in a little valley with a paved road running 10 feet higher than the grounds around the house. The paving and repaving of the road and the building and demolishing of structures around the house have transformed its seat in the landscape. Today, I want to talk to you about the three phases of constructions on the house. The house was not built by an architect. It was built by a farmer who had an idea of what a house was used for and how it was supposed to look. The colonial builder was basing his idea of houses on the houses he knew in the Netherlands. Houses of this period were less formal, usually one story high, with no separate space for entertaining strangers, and with their lower roofs fit more intimately into the landscape. They usually had one or two rooms, approximately 12 feet by 16 feet, set railroad style one behind the other, the second room being the smaller. In the 1652 configuration of Peter Clayson's house, the entrance is on the short face of the south side of the house, and it opened directly into the main room, approximately 12 feet by 16 feet. There are no other doors leading to the outside. The one window on the front of the house was off-center to the west of the door. There was an interior loft under the eaves of the roof with a very low ceiling. There is no evidence of there having been a cellar, which leads us to the conclusion that outbuildings must have existed for storage. The hearth makes this house typically 17th century Dutch. The fireplace extends seven to eight feet along one wall. There is a Dutch oven built in and the tiles surrounding it are imported from the Netherlands and of the period. All of the household activities took place in this room. Cooking, eating, studying, clothing manufacture, sleeping, basically anything which needed to be performed indoors. Privacy would not have been a priority to this family of 12, but neither would it have been an issue in the Netherlands. According to the birth records, Peter and Greta had 10 children born between 1648 and 1663, who all remained at home until they were married. The two eldest daughters did not marry until their mid-twenties, and the oldest son married at 23, so there were many years when the house was full. One might ask, why didn't they just build an addition to the house? It's unclear whether Peter actually owned the house during this period. When Peter's son Garrett took over the management of the farm after his marriage in 1691, the chain of title and legal ownership becomes clear in the historical record. But prior to that, Peter might have still been renting. So think about it. Why would you alter a property that was not yours? People are apt to forget that they are perfectly willing in a rented house to put up with a number of inconveniences. Inconveniences that they would not consider for a moment enduring if they were in a house that they built for themselves. However, the house may not have been as inconvenient as it sounds. 
because inhabitants would have been occupied during the day with the business of running the 400-acre farm. Think about the kind of indoors activities that would have been taking place, cooking, maybe cleaning the house, sleeping. Even people visiting is not something that would occur in the house. It would occur outside the house on benches set along by the front door. There would be herb and vegetable gardens tended by Greta and the children that were set just east of the house within easy reach. In short, the original building is of 17th century Dutch character in that its entrance is on the short face of the house. It had a single pitched roof, a huge tiled hearth and brick oven. The family would have lived around the house, not necessarily in it, with the activities containing the house rather than vice versa. It was built for the functional purpose of housing an overseer and used by a family that was heading up on a social and economic ladder. We see the social mobility of the Wyckoff family in their son, Garrett. Garrett was the eighth child of Peter and Greta, and he was the son who received the Flatlands house when Peter died. He probably received the house because he owned the adjacent property. Garrett altered the house sometime after his marriage to Catherine Johanna Nevis. Catherine's father was the third secretary of New Amsterdam under the Dutch, and maybe more importantly, he was the first secretary of New York under the English. It's probable that Garrett did not want to bring his high society bride back to the little house he still shared with his parents in 1691. It's at this time, just before 1700, that at first glance you might say that Garrett built an addition to the house. But in reality, he built a second house connected to the first using a typically Dutch row house style. Illustrations of the colony from this period show that people were building row houses, not just along a river or canal as you would expect to find them in the Netherlands, but inland as well, regardless of the wide open spaces around them. There are four architectural features that lead to the conclusion that Garrett built a separate house. They are, number one, there's no connecting doorway between the original house and the addition. In order to enter the new part of the house, one would have to actually exit the old house first, go outside, walk around, and go in a separate doorway. Number two, the floors of the two houses are different heights. The new addition was built over a cellar, which did not exist in the first house, and this only became apparent after a connecting door was created in a later renovation, though it required three steps to access from the old part of the house. Third, a second hearth was built in the new addition. Now, normally you would expect that. You would need a fireplace for warmth, for light, but what makes this different is the fireplace was built with all of the necessary cooking features, like an oven. And number four, the entrance to the new addition is on the short facade of the house, just as the original one was, and it's off-center with one window to the west. It's a copy of the original house front. So when we look at this, Garrett, who is a first-generation born in a Dutch colony, He's following his idea of what a house is. He's built this additional house as a copy of the layout of the original house, with the exception that it's slightly larger, and there's a wall dividing the back bedroom into two. 
Now, his wife would have had a similar expectation for what a house is because she's another first-generation Dutch colonial. But the bedroom wall is significant because it's the beginning of a trend towards privacy. During Garrett's life and Catherine's life as first-generation Dutch colonials, they're growing up in a period that spans 1664 to 1730, characterized by an increase in English settlement and a gradual turnover of political power. The first evidence we see of this turnover of political power begins with the name Wyckoff. Peter Clayson had become a local judge. So when the British begin taking over the administration of the colony, they changed the traditional Dutch naming practice, which would have had Peter, his last name was Clayson, his son Garrett would take his first name as Garrett's last name. So Peter, whose father's name was Klaus, would be named Peter Clayson. Peter Clayson's son Garrett would be named Garrett Peterson. Under English law, this was just too confusing to track, so they required that all subjects choose a surname which would follow the family. And so Peter, who had become a judge, chose a name, Wyckoff, which means town court. The administrative language of the colony also began to change to English, and we see this changing in the records of the Wyckoff family in the changing to English in their wills and birth records, but also in the cemeteries. You see this shift in cemeteries in the 18th century with headstones changing from Dutch to English. However, Dutch is still spoken in Brooklyn during this time. It's also spoken in Queens for many generations after British rule. Street names and place names throughout Brooklyn, Queens, upstate New York, and Connecticut remain Dutch today. Dutch language survived English rule because the Dutch colonists living in the British colony did not intermarry with the British and raise their children in Dutch tradition, at least linguistically. Their neighborhoods were all Dutch and their marriage practices were within group, excluding the British. And this became resistance to assimilation, but it also may account for the increasing privacy required in the houses. When Garrett and Catherine died, their son, their oldest son, inherited the house. Now, this is where it gets confusing to trace the title of this house. For several generations, the names Garrett and Peter are the most common for the oldest sons. So for over 200 years, we get an alternating Peter-Garrett sequence of ownership for the house. So during the next period of renovation, we're back to having a Peter Wyckoff owning the house. Now, this Peter Wyckoff, again, marries a girl of Dutch descent in 1723. So... The second Peter marries a Dutch girl named Renzi Schenk in 1723. And this marriage may have been arranged to continue a family alliance and join two of the larger estates in Flatlands. The Wyckoffs of the 1720s had large land holdings in Brooklyn, and the Wyckoffs remain insular against the British throughout this transfer of power. But they don't seem to be antagonistic towards the British during this time. It's in the next generation of Wyckoff ownership we see the emergence of a new phase in Dutch colonial architecture. 
When the next oldest son inherits the house sometime after his father's death in 1730, he puts on an addition, enlarges an existing bedroom, adds another bedroom, and adds something called an east parlor. This is the first time that a room in the Wyckoff house is dedicated to entertaining or leisure. The fireplace in the parlor has no design features specific to cooking associated with it. Therefore, the room serves something other than a functional purpose of a kitchen. This evidences a moving inside, away from nature, and indicates that the Wyckoffs have reached an economic standing which allows time for leisure activity. The house takes on a British flavor from the exterior as well, because with the addition, its entrance emerges as being on the long facade of the house rather than on the short southern face. The entrance isn't actually moved, but this exterior appearance is achieved because the house is just lengthened around it. A storage shed was added to the west end of the house, increasing the length and emphasizing that long face entrance effect. The shed may have been added to avoid storage of strictly household items in outbuildings. This would have effectively kept women closer to the house, again, moving inside away from nature, maybe towards a more genteel existence. The house was becoming more private at a time when Dutch lands were being confiscated just prior to the Revolutionary War. And it was even reported that British soldiers were housed at the Wyckoff Farm during the war. And this period marks the beginning of a public phase of the Wyckoff House, where people other than family are coming to the house. This final reconfiguration of the Wyckoff House seems to come at the direction of the third Garrett's second wife, whom he marries in 1829. The storage shed that had lengthened the house was made more sound and weather-resistant, and windows were finally added to the back of the house. The original entrance to the house was closed, and a doorway was added between the original kitchen and the working parlor. The front entrance was moved several feet eastwards, while the wall connecting the second addition to the house was removed to make room for a hallway. A back entrance was created, going into a little utility room, something like we would call a mudroom today. The staircase that used to lead up to the loft was reoriented to descend into the mudroom, and the stairs themselves were enclosed. A small interior window was opened in the hallway to allow more light into the space. All of these changes seem geared towards making the house more symmetrical and private, which is typical of a Georgian house type. Georgian design became prevalent in the Americas in the 18th century, after enjoying over a century of popularity in Britain. As houses are one of the slowest features of material culture to change, the style was still considered fashionable in the Americas throughout the late 19th century. It was typified by a front door located centrally between windows, a formal hallway, and a house that was two rooms deep. While the Wyckoff house does not possess a cross passage, a symmetrical roof, or this sort of five-opening facade used in British Georgian houses, it comes across as a cross between Dutch vernacular house forms and this British Georgian house. 
However, the installation of the hallway and the continuation of the British trends in architecture may be seen less as a reflection of assimilation to British culture and more an assimilation to an elite lifestyle. Throughout this period, we see that the Wyckoff's fortunes have undergone a change. They've had a rise in social status. They had become successful farmers, prominent citizens, and had a new social obligation. They would have had to entertain in a manner befitting their rank, and yet they still deal with people of lower status, like servants, sharecroppers, overseers, and merchants. The ceramics dating to the space of the house are limited, but conspicuously absent are tea sets, which indicate that although the house is becoming more in keeping with that of its British neighbors, the methods of social interaction are not necessarily at the same level of assimilation. In the final iteration of the Wyckoff House, we're looking at a farm that was no longer isolated on the outskirts of a small colony. In documenting the changes of the Wyckoff House through time, we can see that people order their world according to cultural maps, and these maps take many forms. To say that there are consistencies between Dutch houses and colonial houses may seem obvious, and for technological reasons, it is. People will build what they already know, because that is what they have the technology to do. But it's much more complex and subtle than that. Dutch colonists were building in a way that may have had a functional purpose in the Netherlands, like row houses. Those had no functional purpose in the New World. When offered a choice of a farmstead, many Dutch settlers chose low-lying swampy regions like Flatlands Brooklyn, when equally choice farmland was available on higher ground. They were working from culturally preconceived notions of what a house is and what a farm is. In looking at the Wyckoff house, we would expect to see changes in the house reflect a shift from Dutch to British identity, because that's the history of the colony, and the family existed in that colony as it was undergoing its change. What is surprising is to find the changes indicating a shift not just from Dutch farm overseer, but to Dutch American elite. So when you're walking around the city and you're looking at the architecture around and you see new construction, look at the buildings next door and see if you can see the remnants and architectural traces of what used to be there. And think about how are the shifting fortunes of the city being changed every time something gets renovated or any time something gets demolished or reconstructed? Think about the places that you've lived in your lifetime and how you have altered the physical space of those places, those structures, based upon your idea of what a house is or your idea of what is fashionable, or reflecting something about your ideals, your ideas of privacy, how you use the space around your house, how you use your front yard or your backyard, or if you don't have either one of those, how do you use the space in front of your building? Do you use the space in front of your building? If you have an opportunity to go visit the Wyckoff House in person, I strongly encourage you to do it. It's a really interesting place, especially when you see it in the context of the neighborhood that surrounds it. If you're at the Wyckoff House, I hope you have a wonderful visit. They do terrific programming, and I want you to just 
see if you can take special note of the changes that have happened to the architecture as you walk through the house. Take special note of those three steps that you need to take to go from the old part of the house to the newer part of the house. Take a walk outside and see how much the city has risen around the Wyckoff house. Think about the generations that have walked that road. And think about how your actions make the city rise around you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at GothamCenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. 